From the UCLA Labor Center and KPFK, this is Rework. I'm Sabah Wahid. And I'm Veena Humpapur. Students spend a good chunk of their waking hours in school. And even more when considering extracurriculars, zero periods, and after-school programs. But a young person's world extends far beyond the classroom. What's happening at home and in their neighborhoods? What they see in the media and online? All of these things impact learning. So it's no surprise that the recent teacher strikes weren't just about wages. They were also about access to school counselors, nurses, smaller classrooms, and wraparound services. Teachers reminded us that we need to think about students in a holistic way. In today's episode of Rework, Los Angeles history teacher Rudy Duenas takes us through his own history at LA Unified School District, first as a student, then as an educator, and through the moments that transformed him in and out of the classroom. My name is Rodolfo Duenas, but my friends call me Rudy. I grew up in Northeast Los Angeles. Prior to like my family moving into that community, it was predominantly an Italian community. Around the 70s, there was an influx of Latino immigrants, and my family was one of those families that came from Mexico. My dad was a bracero in the bracero program. I lived in two worlds. Like I lived in a low-income community, right? But at the same time, like I had this natural beauty around me. We lived in the mountains and the hills. We had a lot of trees. We had birds. We had nice little trails. As kids, we would just walk through the community and like enjoy that. We would like slide down the hill. When the grass was like really dry, we would like slide down with cardboard boxes. Stand by me is one of the reference points that I like to to tell people. This is really a good time. The most blast. You walk around and you see all these beautiful places that you could hike to and, you know, the train tracks and the bridge across Arroyo Seco. Like, all that was, like, my community. So it was beautiful. Like, there was that plus, like, community members, you know? Like, on our block, we were all connected with one another. Everybody had each other's back and kids would hang out. We would tell stories on, on our block, like, till late. Rudy was the youngest in his family, and he idolized his eldest brother, Salvador, who was 10 years older. While his middle brothers would tease him, Sal always looked out for him. My oldest brother, Sal, he was my hero. Like, ironically, his name was Salvador, you know, which is savior, you know? So he was like my savior. Like, I really looked up to him. My brother would put on, like, Johnny Chingas, which has, like, very, like, graphic lyrics. And there was, like, this lowrider scene that he would always play, and we would act like we were lowriders. That was one role he played, like, this really funny guy that that I kind of, like, would laugh with and, like, look up to in that way. And then, like, I always felt like he was always protecting me because I was the littlest one. This one time, my brothers, we were playing in the yard, and my brother threw something, like, really dangerous at me. I forgot what it was. And then my brother came home with my parents, and I'm like, could you believe it? Vale hit me with whatever, and he's like, what? And he's like, get over here, and he chased them. He's like, don't ever hurt your little brother, man. What's wrong with you guys? And he would check them, and, you know, they would fall in line. Those are, like, the memories, like, him, like, really protecting us. Rudy was born in the U.S., but Sal was 10 years old when he moved to Los Angeles. And by the time he was 12, Sal was in a gang. In the 80s, there was a lot of gang violence. That's what was always being talked about was, 
oh, you, oh, you live where? In Cypress Park, Highland Park? Oh, watch out. There's a lot of gangs there. If you were a gang member, you got like a lot of respect. You got a lot of attention, whether other males respected you as a male or a lot of females would want to hook up with the cholos. You were kind of like a superstar in your community. And so I think my brother fell into that trap of like over-sensationalized gang life. There was goods and bads, and so it's not just all negative. Culturally, there's like a long legacy of like gang history in the United States, in particular in Los Angeles. My brother's gang goes back to the 1940s. And there was always violence, and it was also part of a marginalized community, the Mexican-American community. That was that history and that legacy. We could, like, tap into the attacks on the Zutsu. You see this community of youth being criminalized from the 1940s. Part of gang culture, what I noticed with my brother growing up was it was that, in essence. He was very proud, and he had some sense of, like, identity. But at the same time, there was all these other negative things. Some of them were outside forces that were being imposed in our communities, right? Like, drugs were being pumped into low-income communities in Los Angeles. I was really young, so I saw through it like a little kid's lens. I had, like, a little chain that was hanging from my pants. It was like those cheap dress pants that you buy at the swap meet or something, and it's like the church pants, but this had, like, a little chain. So I was like, oh, I want to be a pachuco, you know? And that was that pride element. I saw all the good elements of the gang, but, like, some of these negative elements were kind of hidden. This narrative of gangs kind of was different for me. Because I was seeing the brotherhood, the sisterhood amongst cholos and cholas, the pride and the pride in the culture and the connection to the Zutu. At 14 years old, Salvador was arrested and remained incarcerated until he was 18. So a lot of his teenage years and a lot of my Saturdays was spent visiting at CYA, California Youth Authority. That really impacted my life a lot, just seeing my brother being incarcerated and Going to school in the prison system, they were also learning within the jail culture, like this really negative, like if it was negative out in the streets, when it came out of jail, it was like 10 times as negative, and you would see that. And so like my brother spent a big portion of his youth inside jail, so I also learned about that culture. Going to visit him on Saturdays and taking him Pollo Loco and like sitting with my family. When my brother was released out of prison, my family was like, you know what, you gotta straighten your act. And he was trying real hard to adjust to society. In 1986, Rudy was in the second grade. One fateful Sunday, his family was all together watching the Super Bowl. We're watching the Chicago Bears. They were winning, and I was happy because my brother was with us, but then he took off that day. And later on that night, he was down the street with his friends. They were talking, and a car passes by and starts shooting. My brother was uh, shot in the head, and he, he ended up at USC County Medical, and you know um, he was put on a machine. And so my family had to make that, that decision, like, are we going to keep him alive? Pretty much he was... There was no, no way of saving my brother. Rudy was traumatized by Salvador's death. His death brought me to a place where I had a sense of heightened anxiety, but heightened fear of just survival. There was fear of, like, like 
day-to-day things, you know? It was like, oh, man, like, am I going to wake up tomorrow? And it's it's crazy because no one helped me process that. There was no grief counselor. A lot of these teachers were from outside the community. They were all pretty much middle class, you know? So they weren't living our realities. School is just a place you go and you learn, but you don't talk about real issues. The most I got was my second grade teacher. When I came back, it, it was a week after my brother passed away, and I couldn't handle being in class in the beginning, so I ran out and I was crying on the porch. And then she came over and she kind of like, she like patted my shoulder and she said, everything's going to be okay. And, you know, when you want to come in, you come in, right? So I was just like, and I thought in my head, like, what do you know, lady? Like, everything's going to be okay. Like, no, nothing's going to be okay. And it's it's crazy because it's like, I would love to say, like, there was only a few people that died in my community that way, you know? But, you know, my brother was part of the pattern of violence that was going on in my community. Six years later, in, in 1991, they were trying to kill my brother-in-law, and they, they, shot, they shot into the car, and my sister was also shot in the head. It's like part of the same pattern of violence. That was the trauma that you live through in Los Angeles. And it was kind of like normal. Not every family had that story, but you knew someone or, oh man, look at these people. Like, and, and it was like prison or, or death, you know? And being without my brother, it was that consistent, like that sense of like not fearing death and fearing like violence and fearing all these things. And then when my sister passed away, it would just like reinforce that. days pretending to lowride, Sal had inspired Rudy's love for acting. After his death, the arts became a space for Rudy to process his feelings. They wanted to do like an end of the year celebration. I'm like, oh man, I'm going to do a play. I got a group of people that were sixth graders. Like I like freestyling hip hop too, so I'm Mr. Freestyle sometimes. So like even back then I was like, let me just freestyle this play. And so we did this little skit about my brother going to jail, and at the end, my brother dies, and I did the role of my brother. It shows you how big part of my life this was. When Rudy got to high school, he was sure he was going to continue acting and eventually become a drama teacher. But then he found another passion. I had a lot of mentors, well, femtors, right? I want to say femtors because one of the most important people in all my schooling was Miss Litwin. She's the first teacher to tell the class, I'm going to teach you some stuff about your community, but someone else should be teaching you this. It should be someone from your community teaching you about your community, but we don't have that, so I'm going to teach you this stuff. And I was just like, wow, like it was really cool. Listening to her lectures and listening to what she was talking about made me think, one, maybe I want to do history as a major, but also like I took on that challenge that she kind of put forth. Like I... I want to be that person that she's talking about, like that person that comes back to the community and like teaches about their community issues. And so she was one of the first people to really say that publicly. And I really appreciated that. I was part of a program called Humanitas, which she was part of. And we would talk about issues and we would connect what we're reading, like the Scarlet Letter, to like, you know, feminism. 
you were seen as like an intellectual and you were seen as someone that had an opinion and they would ask you questions. Second semester, they pulled me out. I don't know why. The other classroom that they transferred me to, it was like bookwork. It was very traditional, very top down. The teacher just looked frightened. She was afraid of the students. The kids rebelled against that. There was no sense of connection. That contrast, it really impacted me. I was like, whoa, man. So I, like, I saw two different worlds. It kind of stuck in my brain beyond that classroom. It was really formative on my thinking about education. During a museum field trip, Rudy realized this two-tiered system extended across the school district. Those kids from all over L.A., I thought they were from, like, Orange County. I'm like, they're not from L.A. They don't sound like me. They don't look like me. I realized being affluent and being from those communities, you were so sure about what you were saying. Like, you had no doubt. And in my community, it was like, you doubted. And always, like, if somebody tells you something, you kind of like, oh, maybe I'm wrong. I was just like, oh, dang, this is L.A. This is how different schools are different. Like, you just have different type of people. At the same time that Rudy became aware of the inequalities in the school system, he was also learning about historical student organizing. Aren't you Sal Castro? The teacher who orchestrated today's walkout. Yes, I am Sal Castro. And uh, no, I, I didn't orchestrate the uh, walkouts. The uh, kids did it on their own. Why do you think they did it? Well, the Mexican-American community has long been referred to as the uh, sleeping giant. And uh, today, In 1968, 22,000 Eastside High School students walked out in protest. They were upset. The schools weren't preparing them for college, and they were pushing them into low-skilled work. Their buildings were falling apart, and teachers weren't adequately trained. The walkouts brought national attention to the Chicano movement. The imagery of the 1968 walkouts was really powerful to me. I saw pictures, and I was like, oh, man, I could connect with this. There was this new group called La Raza Unida that had started at my school. When I joined, I was learning about culture. I was learning about resistance. These young people were geniuses, and they were, like, already knowing what was up. That's the same year Proposition 187 was on the ballots. That just created such a big political movement. This law was going to be an attack on immigrants. In 1994, Prop 187 would have kept undocumented immigrants from getting the health care education, and services they needed. And the narrative I would see in the media, like there was these horrible commercials that would come out. It was almost like Nazi propaganda, like when they would have Jews like as rats. They would have immigrants like crossing the freeways, and then they would put like this scary music. Two million illegal immigrants in California. The federal government won't stop them at the border, yet requires us to pay billions to take care of them. I felt like personally attacked so explicitly. There were so many things in my life that I had no control over, and I was, like, frustrated at that. And so, like, when this came along, I was like, yeah, like, I could join in this struggle that I do have control over. It was, like, a sense of agency. And the 68 kids, they did that. I'm like, oh, I could do that, too. If they did it, I could do it. When I got involved politically, like, I was like, oh, this is so cool. 
I'm learning about history from people, and, and most of them were like college age or my peers. You pretty much had like the high schools building their own roadmaps and saying, this is what's good for our school. We had our sit-in. It was like huge. There was a lot of students there. It was like awesome. And we had a big rally, and then we marched around our community after, and it was like really empowering. I actually saw it in a sociology book in college. I was like, oh, man, that was my high school. Like, that's cool. And it's almost like modeling the 1968 model. People were just talking about, like, how this was a continuation of that. Rudy's high school experience cemented his path to becoming a history teacher. He knew that he had to continue this legacy of connecting the past to current struggles. History is like very crucial to organizing. If you're trying to fight against something that is wrong, you have to be informed. It's not just, oh, here's a bunch of facts and this is what you got to learn, but it involves being critical and also telling the narrative of communities. I was like, well, I'm college bound. My job is going to be to help people in the community, even though like it wasn't always done for me. Teachers can impact people, so let me do it through that avenue. There's like this very negative experience that I had in LEUSD schools, but then there was also these positive elements. And the positive elements always came from the people, you know, the way they taught or the way they spoke and the way they mentored you. That's what inspired me. Like, oh man, like, yeah, like, I was like, you know what, there's some things about the system that I don't like. I want to change when I'm there, you know? And so I already started envisioning how it would be like, Rudy has been teaching at Wilson High School in El Sereno for almost two decades. He finds that his own life experiences are an important tool for connecting with his students. The thing about having a brother that was in a gang was I was able to see a person in a many different ways. Even people I grew up with, some of them just saw Cholos as a negative, and so they stood away. I, I couldn't do that. That was my brother. That was my family. I empathize and I sympathize and I connected with these kids. I feel like they're my brother and sister, but at the same time, also, like, I feel this sense of I need to help, I need to connect, and I feel like I could talk to them in a certain language, and so they understand. What I always do is share my family's story. I tell a story about my brother and my sister. I share how I have anxiety now. Like, I'm open, and, and, and so that's, like, where kids were, like, oh, they'll, like, come up to me and tell me, oh, me too. I've had students tell me, oh, my parent was deported, or... My father passed away because of cancer or, like, death, incarceration, immigration issues. I tell them, like, dude, I, I feel you 100%, like, because I've been through that. And then I'm like, oh, my God, like, you know, like, thank you. Like, I'm learning from you. I feel like sometimes not enough people talk to them on that human level. And so I wanted to make sure that I was that person that would at least try to like engage in those conversations and tell them like, this is a safe space for you. We all do things that maybe we shouldn't do, but like, let's have a discussion. And hopefully that discussion will lead to some positive things. We don't have that space in schools where we could talk about these things and flesh these things out and, you know, build these relationships. I get really frustrated when it's like, oh, it's because of resources. I can't fully help these youth, like, go through their process. Things like restorative justice and, like, building community on campuses is something that's really essential. 
Our schools need to have more people to like really help youth out that are struggling with a lot of things. And so I think that's really front and center for me. Sometimes I would be talking to a youngster. They got locked up or, you know, they're gone or, or, you know, they got kicked out of the school. Literally, I was almost like talking to my brother and my sister. Even like wanting to talk to them is almost like wanting to talk my brother and my sister out of doing things. Some of these youngsters never hear a teacher talk to them in a certain way. And they're like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, I'm not used to this. And then I also like... I like rapping and freestyling, like, and so, like, they'll see me, like, freestyle, and then, like, they'll be like, oh, okay, he knows what's up. Since you know I know what's up, like, let's talk for real. Can you freestyle about education? <laughs> nah. Oh, come on. <laughs> nah. I was doing a freestyle. It's on someone's Instagram somewhere. Uh, the day of the, one of the strikes, I don't even have a beat, but I could do it acapella. It's okay. I see teachers marching, and it's an art, and they don't know what art is because art is not taught in schools but in a fully packed classroom. And sometimes we ain't got no room to breathe because we are the ones that they want to engage. But I'm telling you, man, I've been listening to Rage, and I've been taking notes. And let me tell you, sometimes I want to quote a lot of things that are going through the minds of people that I can't say because it's too explicit. But let me take you on a mental visit into my classroom where I ain't got no resources. And sometimes I think about how they got us like dogs and horses playing games and education isn't a flame and I ain't got no beat, man. So I'm trying to keep it so tight. Man, see, it that wasn't even good. That was like me on a six. I thought yeah. it was I great. Thought it was I could do way better. <laughs> and my, my son's like, yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah. In 2019, over 30,000 public school teachers went on strike in Los Angeles. For the first time in nearly 30 years, teachers and their supporters put on red ponchos and marched in the rain. They demanded resources for students and better pay. One unique aspect of LA Unified is that most educators come from communities of color, just like their students. This made the strike personal to teachers like Rudy. Education has been a roller coaster for me. I've had my really low moments and really, like, great moments. But always those great moments in education involved, like, community. Participating in the strike was just, like, a, a given. It was just because of my background and just fighting for social justice and just fighting for issues and, and understanding the issues that were at hand. Like, we were just fed up as educators because of all these conditions that were being put in front of us. I think that the students know that they're not getting the top grade education and enhancing and, and improving the conditions in our schools will give them that sense of, well, somebody actually cares about us. When I saw them look at us outside and some of them joined us, they knew, they're like, wow, that's the heart and that's what we want for our school. They saw the heart out there marching and hitting the drums and being in the rain. The mighty, mighty people. Fighting for 
Rudy understands how trauma, healing, and community building span across generations. He learned from the stories that came before him and now recognizes his role in connecting with the next generation of youth, youth that faced new and renewed struggles in the fight for justice. I hope that they, they take away this idea when things get rough, you don't just give up. You actually have to fight for things. And it takes a lot of work, but if your fight is righteous, you got to vocalize. You can't just be quiet about it. You got to speak out. And I think they saw us do that. And that's how we learn. We learn from other people's actions. You know, I learned from the 68 walkouts, you know, and so I think they'll, they'll take that with them, you know. And it is the, for adults to lead, but to include the youth with us and then give them the, the, the agency to be able to then eventually lead themselves. There's like so many people at Wilson High School that, that have been part of my family and have really like helped me and like held my hand throughout this educational process. They're close to my heart. And I think that's one thing that the strike, like when we're talking about these issues, it's about building communities. And you saw communities come out together. All these teachers that are finally feeling that sense of agency and they're like coming out and they're striking. And so like, but remember communities is crucial and like nobody could def defeat a community that's united. And we, we can't forget that. Like we got to keep on pushing that. If you could take anything from the LA, from the strike, I saw that beautiful unity and we can't forget that. We got to live like life is humanity, united in one. See, I've been living life for the fear of the gun. And sometimes the gun is not a metal one, but sometimes the gun is the pressure they put us on. And they try to keep us on a different plane. But I'm telling you, man, this mental health issue is driving me insane because we don't have the right therapists. We don't have the right people. We just have a bunch of people that think about dollar bills and that's evil because they talk about profit and wages and talk about how we don't deserve the raises because a lot of other teachers get paid less than us in other states. But let me tell you, man, this is a crazy debate that they try to overrate and they put it in the stories all over this nation and the state and they try to fill all our, our rate. But the reality is that this debate is one-sided because they got a lot of the resources so they could get their books written and you could start to be cited and talk about like it's the truth. But I'm getting lost because I ain't got a freestyle. Oh, man, see, I'm messing up. Anyways, I'm trying to get too much. Yeah, I don't know. That was, that was, that was all right again. That was like a seven. A little bit better. That was a seven. During the interview, Rudy's 12-year-old son Alejandro sat patiently listening. We wondered, what did he think of all of this? I think it's amazing how he's been through these things. Like, a lot of bad things are happening that they're not really being shown or told to the world. I did participate in the strike, and I think it was amazing because I saw these, all these teachers together united, and they were fighting for the same thing. A special thanks to Rudy Duenas for sharing his story. Rudy is working on a play about his brother, so stay tuned for that. And to all the teachers out there, thank you. You're listening to Rework, a program of the UCLA Labor Center and KPFK. 
This week's show was produced by Veena Humpapur and Saba Wahid. Thanks to our show advisor, Stephanie Ritopper. Visit our website at reworkradio.org or Facebook at forward slash reworkradio. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at rework underscore radio. Till next time, rethink, rework. <laughs>